Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm your host, John Good, and this is going to be your Threat Intel Briefing for January 8th, 2023 through January 14th, 2023. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. That way that I know you enjoy the content. YouTube knows you like the content and it keeps pushing it your way as I put out new content. And then if you're listening on podcasting platforms, also make sure to subscribe and leave me a review. Let me know if you enjoy the show, if you want to hear about some different things and anything like that. Also check out the description because there will be a link to the show notes where you can see the articles that we're talking about. You can read a little bit more about them. Or if you want to read some of the other articles that we didn't have time to get to, then that's a great source as well because there are some other great events that we can't just get to all the events, unfortunately, in one show. So without any further delay, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the articles. So first article, Amazon S3 will now encrypt all data with AES-256 by default. Amazon Simple Storage Service S3 will now automatically encrypt all objects added on buckets on the server side using AES-256 by default. While the server-side encryption system has been available on AWS for over a decade, the tech giant has enabled it by default to bolster security. Administrators will not have to take any action for the new encryption system to affect their buckets, and Amazon promises it won't have any negative impact, uh, performance impact. S3, there's a quote, S3 buckets that do not use default encryption now automatically apply SSE S3 as a default setting. Existing buckets currently using S3 default encryption will not change. So I'd love to hear your opinions on this, first of all, if you deal with AWS S3 uh, encryption on data, anything like that, really. And uh, I would say just really in general what your thoughts are on this. But to me, this is a good idea, right? We've seen AWS do things like this before. For instance, with the blocking public access, if you've ever configured an S3 bucket, one of the settings that you can uncheck now is to block, uh, to uh, to allow public access rather, right? So the check is to block public access. And we saw before that this was not enabled by default. And then they kind of shifted their way of thinking to enable this by default because people were leaving their buckets available to the public, right? You could just access it on the internet. and this is kind of along those same lines, right? They're trying to make it easier for administrators of AWS and S3 and developers because they want to you know, help you be secure, right? There's a lot of settings that you can configure in a lot of this technology, especially with cloud. And if you accidentally do something or you accidentally don't check a box, right? That could be really bad. This is one of those catastrophic kinds of settings where if you don't check it and all of your customer data is exposed to the internet, that's a really bad day, right? So I think it's personally a good thing, um, especially if performance isn't impacted because that's always a concern with encryption is will uh, the performance of that data or the ability to access that data you know, be impacted? Because if you're encrypting, obviously you have to decrypt data to actually access it. So that's clearly a potential issue. But if they're saying it's not going to affect performance, then um, that's a great thing, right? And it's AWS, 
So they're going to have a ton of performance power behind their systems and their infrastructure. So I got to believe they kind of know what they're talking about and they've probably tested it quite a bit, put it through some stress tests and things like that. And they have other data, right, based on um, other customers using encryption as far as how that performance is impacted. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is overall a good thing because, you know, you got to encrypt your data. That's one of the things that is just, you know, it's an ongoing issue as far as people not encrypting the right kinds of data, not encrypting data at all. And, you know, they're just kind of taking the guesswork out of it. They're going to just encrypt it, right? So I, I think that is an overall uh, positive thing for cloud infrastructures. So, but again, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your opinions on it and whether you agree with that or disagree with that, or, you know, maybe there's some other settings that you'd like to see uh, set by default and maybe AWS will come watch the, the show and they will uh, adopt that. <laughs> so uh, next article, millions of vehicles at risk. API vulnerabilities uncovered in 16 major car brands. Multiple bugs affecting millions of vehicles from 16 different manufacturers could be abused to unlock, start, and track cars, plus, uh, plus impact the privacy of car owners. The security vulnerabilities were found in the automotive APIs powering Acura, BMW, Ferrari, Ford, Genesis, Honda, Hyundai, Infiniti, Jaguar, Kia, Land Rover, Mercedes-Benz, Nissan, Porsche, Rolls-Royce, Toyota, as well as software from uh, Reviver, SiriusXM, and Spiron. The flaws uh, run a wide gamut ranging from those that give access to internal company systems and user information to weaknesses that, could, that would allow an attacker to remotely send commands to achieve uh, remote code execution. Most serious of the issues, which concerns Spiron Telematics solution, could, uh, could have been exploited to, to gain full administrative access, enabling an adversary to issue arbitrary commands to about 15.5 million vehicles, as well as update device firmware. So if you haven't been following or tracking the car manufacturer space and the smart capabilities or the connected capabilities, We've seen a lot of issues and vulnerabilities in that space, right? Even at events like DEF CON and, um, you know, those larger events, they have cars that you can go and hack, right? Like there are events or booths where you can go in there and hack the cars, right? So it's not a new idea that these, um, these car vulnerabilities exist, right? But it's really... Um, a, it's really interesting just the magnitude, right? Like how many manufacturers are just like, meh, we're, we're just gonna, you know, we'll, we'll just let them be vulnerable, right? Um, I, we see that a lot, right? Of course, with cars, there's kind of that cost security benefit, right? Or cost, um, yeah, really cost and security benefit, right? They wanna put a ton of security into cars and make it super expensive, or do they wanna keep it relatively inexpensive and not do that, right? Like a, um, a Honda Civic, right? Do we wanna put in biometric uh, controls and uh, you know all the, whatever, all this other stuff, right? Or do we wanna keep it relatively low cost, right? So there is that aspect of things, but we continue to see car manufacturers uh, almost seem like they just really, you know, aren't putting a lot of effort into their security. And, you know, this is kinda, Kind of along those lines, right? So uh, very interesting. 
especially when you start getting into the aspects of you being able to unlock, start, track cars, do, you know, do actual commands, right? It's one thing if I can just change the radio station, right? Another if I can increase the volume to a uh, ear piercing, deafening volume uh, level. It's another thing if I can start the car. It's another thing if I can unlock doors, if I can, you know, um, cause the brakes to not work or something like that, right? Like all of these things potentially could be really bad. And there's definitely some safety concerns in cars themselves, right? So if you're able to affect certain things in that car, that becomes a safety issue. And that becomes a real concern for anybody, right? Not just the people that are in those cars, the people that are around those cars, right? So, okay, if I don't have a Honda Civic, am I concerned? Well, yes, because there's Honda Civics out on the road, right? So if, you know, whoever, right, if they, you know, their brakes stop working or something or their car just shuts off on the freeway, that's going to affect a lot of other people, right? So it's a serious deal. And I would really like to see car manufacturers uh, put a little bit more effort into their security, right? Some are doing better than others for sure. But, you know, some are just not, it doesn't seem like they're doing anything. Right. So, um, yeah, this is something that is really interesting to continue to watch. If you want to be on the forefront of, you know, emerging area, I've said this several times, but uh, car hacking, car security, that's a really, you know, emerging area. And one that I would say definitely get into if you're interested in that kind of thing, because these cars are just coming, becoming more and more connected. And as that happens, you know, more vulnerabilities are discovered. So, and they're, they're uncovered, they're exploited, you know, at, at shows and proof of concept videos with the uh, bit flippers, you know, whatever, right? Um, so really interesting and gonna be interesting going into the future still. Next article, identity thieves bypass experience, uh, experience security to view credit reports. Identity th thieves have been exploiting a glaring security weakness in the website of Experian one of the big three consumer credit reporting bureaus. Normally, Experian requires that those seeking a copy of their credit report successfully answer several multiple choice questions about their financial history. Uh, but until the end of 2022, Experian's website allowed anybody to bypass these questions and go straight to the consumer report. Now, uh, all that was needed was the person's name, address, birthday, and social security number. In December, Krebs on Security heard from uh, Jinya Kushnir, a security researcher living in Ukraine who said she discovered uh, who said he discovered the method being used by identity thieves after spending time on telegram chat channels dedicated to the cashing out of compromised identities. Normally Experian's website would present uh, four or five multiple choice questions such as which of the following addresses have you lived at? Uh, Kushnir told Krebs that the questions uh, that when the questions pages load, you simply change the last part of the URL from ACR slash OOW to ACR slash report, and the side site would display the consumer's full credit report. So that's an issue, right? Like anytime that you're taking in customer data or any kind of data in general, if I can just go change a parameter, right? Or uh, a, a location in the URL, and then I can just get the results and bypass everything else, that's obviously an issue, right? That's kind of web application security 101. So it's 
pretty concerning that a basic thing like that uh, was just overlooked. <laughs> I mean, you know, how did that not get picked up in like a penetration test, right? Like that seems like a pretty standard, um, a pretty standard test, right? Like that's gonna be in the OWASP testing guide. It's gonna be, uh, you know, directory traversal and, you know, a couple other things, right, are gonna apply to that situation. But if you've ever learned about application security and web application security, you know, one of the things that you learn about is with a tool like Burp or uh, Zap from OWASP is that, you know, try to change the parameters, right? Try to see how the application actually works when it's supposed to, like as it's supposed to do, and then try to change the parameters before that point and see if you can just get directly to that endpoint without submitting information, logging in, something like that, right? And if you can, well, that's a serious issue, right? Like, I don't know how else to say it, right? Especially with credit reporting, right? The credit bureaus in the United States, that's how you get a lot of um, like loans and things like that, right? So if you were to get a credit card, if you were to get a car loan, if you were to get a mortgage on a house, uh, all of that stuff would require your social security number, right? But it's based on your credit report. How uh, worthy are, I guess, you know, is a good way to put it, how worthy does that report say that you are to borrow X amount of dollars, right? Like what risk do you pose to the lender? That's the whole idea with it. But, you know, that again, that just seems like such a simple thing that I wonder how long that that was uh, in there for. Right? Like how long could you just bypass this for? That's a serious issue, right? If I can get access to your credit report, well, for one, I apparently I have your social security number, but I can also see a lot of other things, right? Like I can see your financial history. I can see if you have maybe defaulted payments or something like that. Maybe then somebody goes and blackmails that person, right? Like it just, it makes that whole attack and exploitation phase a little bit easier. And then not to mention, you could just collect all this information and then sell it off on the black market if you're really malicious. So really, really bad. Uh, shame on Experian. You know, uh, a company with that much financial responsibility or that much responsibility of people's information, I expect a little bit more out of you. I'm sorry, that's just really, really basic security. So uh, next article, if governments are banning TikTok, why is it still on your corporate devices? TikTok, the viral app resident uh, of, on millions of devices, was recently banned from executive branch devices in the United States, as set out in the recent omnibus bill uh, signed by President Joe Biden. State governments have also stepped up and acted or planned to take action to ban TikTok from official devices, including Tennessee, Texas, Indiana, uh, and Utah, all banned TikTok in late, uh, late 2022, so in December. In addition, a number of universities, hubs of research and development where the future is often seen up close have banned TikTok from their devices and network access. So if you're not familiar with what TikTok is, I guess in general to start, right? I hope you are. A TikTok is a short form content platform, social media, um, basically it's all video format. So you film a little 60 second clip or something, <clears throat> um, some people have longer videos. 
but um, and then you just put that up, right? Like it's all video based. And the problem with TikTok in general, if again, if you're not familiar, is that its parent company is a Chinese company. And so there's all this concern that China, uh, China, the Chinese government, can see and track people that are using it. And there's a ton of concern with it, right? A ton of privacy and security concern. And, um, and they can see what people are watching, and you know, all kinds of stuff, right? Um, and so there's been a lot of back and forth <clears throat> about, um, uh, about TikTok trying to show their independence from the Chinese government, right? From that parent company and the requirements to like share data with the uh, Chinese government. That's really the big deal, right? And so the US government, for example, is really against allowing TikTok on official devices. And there, there's been a lot of talk about banning TikTok from the United States. And so all kinds of different stuff, right? And so, you know, government kind of started out, right? And so we saw that with like the, um, the federal government, and then we, we're starting to see it again with state governments and then universities, right? Because all of those entities, those institutions, like the universities, for example, they have important data, right? Like there's a lot of research that goes on in universities. And some of that research turns into other projects or programs or uh, competitive advantages or whatever, right? Like intellectual property of the United States, right? Like, so things that we wanna keep inside the United States. And then other countries do the same kind of thing too, right? But um, so universities typically, you know, are a institution of learning, right? So there's not a lot of barriers that they try to put in place. And so it's a real concern if a, another government can just start picking out that information with what they want. They don't have to spend money or time cultivating that information or doing that research, and they can just benefit from that, right? Imagine if that helps another country's economy gives them this huge advantage that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Imagine if some cutting edge uh, technology that could be used for military use, if they're able to pick that information out and go develop the weapons and things like that before uh, you know, the other government can or you know, do more research on it or protect that information or whatever it is, right? There's a lot of potentially bad things that can happen if that is exploited to the fullest. Right, so I'm not surprised that we're seeing it start to get banned like this, uh, and I think this is just going to be a continuing trend, especially on government devices, right? Government devices, university devices, things like that. I mean, personal devices are kind of another. Um, that's like another step, right? Like that, it would have to be a much, um, much more widespread concern, and there would be more steps that would have to be taken to get it banned out of the United States or another country. But, um, you know, TikTok continues to be in the news. <laughs> They're just, they just cannot escape being in the news. It's crazy, right? It seems like every week there's an article on TikTok about, you know, they're potentially spying on some kind of data, right? So that's, it's just a serious concern. <laughs> so uh, good stuff, good stuff. Another article here about TikTok. Shocker, I know. TikTok CEO questioned by EU official over reports of aggressive data harvesting and surveillance. Here you go. TikTok's chief executive, uh, Zhao Qi, 
Zhao Xiao Zichu, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, was asked on Tuesday about recent press reporting on aggressive data harvesting and surveillance in the U.S. during a meeting with the European Union's top antitrust official. TikTok said the meetings were part of its regular engagement with commissioners to discuss tech regulation and display its engagement and cooperation with policymakers. Similar questions have been raised in the United States. Last November, the FBI Director Christopher Wray warned Congress about the ways the agency was concerned the Chinese government could weaponize the app, disclosing that the Bureau had several national concerted concerns about its popularity. The Chinese government could use it to control data collection on millions of users or control the recommendation algorithm, which could be used to influ uh, for influence operations if they so choose, or to control software on millions of devices, which gives the opportunity to potentially technically compromise personal devices. So a lot of good information in that article, right? Um, like we said before we even hit this article, there's all these concerns about surveillance and what the Chinese government could potentially do if they have influence, if they have control on TikTok, right? There's a lot of information that goes in there. Uh, you know, the ability to uh, surveil, conduct surveillance on users, on millions of people, you know, probably isn't all that um, great for everybody. <laughs> I don't know. That's a pretty good way to put it, I think, a pretty, a pretty subtle way to put it. But, you know, it, it's just a huge concern. And the European Union, the EU, you know, they're really concerned with privacy in general. I would say in a lot of cases, more concerned with it than the United States, right? Like they are the front runners on privacy regulation for sure, right? You have like GDPR and some other stuff that they're just like, yes, we're going to uh, nationally roll this out, right? Where in the United States, we have some stuff, but we also have, you know, we don't have enough. And we have states that are trying, having to take it upon themselves to roll out their own regulation to further that, uh, the privacy regulations and pr uh, control of your data, right? Of your data, my data, uh, all the consumer's data, right? And so it's just, you know, what can I say? TikTok's gonna be in the news again next week, I'm sure, right? Every week, every week there's a TikTok article, I feel like, because they just, they have, created such a bad picture and they've done things that just further that idea that there is that they are not uh, a neutral party right and when you do that it's very hard to come back from that reputational damage it just is right like they've dug themselves in such a hole that uh i i don't see them getting out of it right like i think tiktok will probably continue to be kind of a thing but maybe it will be like a myspace if you don't know what MySpace is, I'm sorry. It's, it was a social media platform back when Facebook was trying to become the thing. So we're talking, you know, at this point, like 20 years ago, something like that. And, uh, you know, it went away, right? TikTok, TikTok's probably going to go away. Just too suspicious. So <laughs> we'll see though, right? All right. Moving on, uh, everybody loves an article about The Guardian. The Guardian confirms it was hit by a ransomware attack. The Guardian has confirmed it was hit by a ransomware attack in December and that the personal information, personal data of UK staff members has been accessed in the incident. The Guardian Media uh, Group's chief executive, Anna Bateson, 
and the Guardian's editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner, confirmed in the news, uh, the news in an update emailed to staff on Wednesday afternoon. They described the incident as a highly sophisticated cyber attack involving unauthorized third-party access to parts of our network. That's a quote. Most likely triggered by a phishing attempt in which the victim is tricked, often via email, into downloading malware. Guardian said it had no reason to believe that the personal data of readers and subscribers had been accessed. It is not believed that the personal data of, the, of Guardian US and Guardian Australia staff has been accessed either. So if you haven't been following the show, if you haven't watched previous episodes, uh, the last several episodes, we've had articles on The Guardian, right? They started out by basically um, allowing staff to, to work from home, and then they kind of pushed out that that deadline of people coming back and said, no, we're going to continue to work uh, from home. I think it was like the end of January, January 23rd or something, is what um, I think I said last week. But um, yeah, I mean, ransomware, right? Ransomware is everywhere, right? It seems to keep hitting companies left and right. But, um, you know, The Guardian, they have still said that it hasn't really impacted their operations, right? Uh, that's what the articles the previous week, last week, uh, said. They were able to still continue with operations. They were just mainly having people work from home. And so from a cybersecurity standpoint, you know, kind of stepping back from The Guardian, what kind of contingency planning do you have in place, right? What kind of disaster recovery stuff do you have in place? What kind of business continuity stuff do you have in place? So when something happens, what do you do to make sure your business continues to run, right? Can you withstand a ransomware attack? Can you withstand servers going down, right? Um, that's all about business continuity, right? Keeping the business going. Disaster recovery, how do you get back to that normal state, right? So when you're doing uh, anything like disaster recovery planning and you're creating a lot of this stuff, you basically look at all your processes and you prioritize them, right? This is most important. This is, you know, second most important. This is third most important. And you list them out, okay? And you, you put them in order of priority. And then you really focus on the things that are critical, right? Because that stuff has to get back up first. Right. And so you look at, you know, the impact of all that stuff. If this server was down for, uh, you know, a day, would that impact us a week, whatever. Right. Like you do this for everything. And that way you really know how to respond because you'll do tabletop exercises where you walk through this stuff. Maybe you actually do a full on exercise where you fail over to your alternate systems, your alternate servers, and you really test it out. You make sure everything works because the worst time to test out a business continuity plan or disaster recovery plan is when something happens, right? That's the worst time. You have to test this stuff before it actually happens or else it's worthless, right? It's just, it's a worthless plan because you have no idea if it's gonna work. And a lot of that stuff, if something happens, your business could go like belly up, right? Like you could go out of business. Um, and it's a serious, serious thing because those critical processes are super important to make sure they continue to run, right? You'll always have things that are less important uh, and things that are extremely important, right? What, what causes the business to run? What can we wait a week, a month, you know, six months to recover? And it's really important that you do that. And I can't stress that enough 
uh, in any of these articles and any of the training that I do because it's really, really important, right? So keep that in mind. Uh, so here's a cyber uh, careers article. Amazon to ax 18,000 jobs as it cuts costs. Amazon plans to cut more than 18,000 jobs, the largest number in the firm's history, as it battles to save costs. Online giant, which employs 1.5 million people globally, did not say which uh, countries the job cuts would hit, but said that they would include Europe. Most of the job losses will come from its consumer retail businesses and its human resources division. So I know, you know that those jobs that they kind of list the areas, probably not necessarily IT, right? And that's, um, you know, I get that. The main reason why I wanted to put this article in here is actually because, you know, in your career, you've got to think of ways that you can make yourself withstand, you know, cuts, right? Uh, withstand recessions. How do you make yourself really, really valuable? So either that company can't afford to lose you, which keep in mind, basically everybody is replaceable, right? We're, I'm not going to argue that because that's a fact, right? But your goal as an employee should, make your, should be to make yourself really, really valuable, right? Like you bring a lot of skill set to the table. That doesn't mean don't document procedures and like keep all the information internally to yourself, right? Like that's not what I'm saying. But the more skill sets that you have, right? Like the broader your skill is, the more expertise you have, uh, the more integral you are to the business, the more important you are, the less likely they are to cut you, right? On the flip side of that, right? If you have a bunch of skills, you're a really valuable employee, but they cut you, well, you can go to another employer relatively easily, right? Because you have all these skills, certifications, whatever, right? And uh, experience and, you know, all this stuff that somebody else that is able to keep you on staff or able to bring you on, you know, needs. And I, that's one thing that I can't stress enough, especially to newer people that they, you know, they kind of get, they get really excited about their first job, right? If they're like, okay, great. I'm super excited about this job. And that's kind of the end of the road. Like I get that sense, right? Like you're like, all right, I'm set. I'm set. I'm good. I'm in this company. I'm good, right? Like I got into Amazon. Well, companies make cuts, you know, when things happen, right? You can never really predict when things are going to happen that are going to force the company to make some cuts, lay people off, let people go. Maybe your team gets downsized, company goes another direction, your team gets let go, whatever, right? And you have to always be building your skill sets and building things for your professional resume, your, your, what you bring to the table so that you're a valuable employee wherever you go, right? Or wherever you try to go. And you're, you're a competitive employee so that people want to bring you on, right? Like, let's say your whole team gets let go and then you all go to apply to another company. They're probably not gonna bring all you on, right? If anybody from your team, but you know, you could be competing against people that you were on the same team with and you could lose to those people, right? Like you could not get hired and they could because they were building their skills and they were just an overall more competitive employee. That is a crucial thing that you have to understand in your career. It doesn't matter what level you're at, right? Obviously the higher that you get in an organization, the more experience you get, things like that, 
you build more and more skills, right? Like you've just been around the block a lot more and you, uh, you have more time in that kind of position. So you just naturally kind of become a more valuable employee unless you're just not doing anything, right? Like, yeah. But um, you know, that, that's just a really important thing that you continue to build skills, right? You have a 30, 40 year career, uh, maybe a 50 year career, I don't know, right? Like some people have really, really long careers however long you want to work or you have to work. And that's how long you have to be building your skills, right? Maybe when you get to the last couple of years, you kind of just put it on cruise control because you're not as worried about it. But, you know, 10 years into your career, if you get like, if you get let go and you don't have a lot of skills, that's going to not be that fun to find a new job. It's going to be pretty hard, right? Things are pretty competitive. And if you're the one of the ones that aren't doing anything to learn things or improve your skill set, then you're going to have a really hard time finding a new job. And it's probably, I bet it's probably going to be harder than if you were brand new and you didn't have as much to offer because they're going to be like, well, why didn't you build any skills in that 10 year span? Right? Like, why didn't you learn anything? Why didn't you get a certification? Why didn't you do any of this stuff? I just, you know, like, what have you been doing in that time period? Like it's gonna look really weird at that point. So it's really, really important that you do that. Let's see here. All right, a college student created an app that can tell whether AI wrote an essay. Teachers worried about students turning in essays written by a popular artificial intelligence chatbot now have a tool of their own. Edward Tien, a 22-year-old senior at Princeton University has built an app to detect whether text is written by ChatGPT the viral chatbot that sparked fears over potential uh, over its potential for unethical uses in academia. Tian, a computer science major who is minoring in journalism, spent part of his winter break creating uh, GPT-0, which he said can quickly and efficiently decipher whether a human or chat GPT authored an essay. His motivation to create the chatbot was to fight what he sees as an increase in AI plagiarism since the release of ChatGPT in late November, there have been lots of reports of students using the breakthrough language model to pass off AI written assignments as their own. Uh, <laughs> I thought this was just a fun one to throw in here because ChatGPT is the latest craze, right? Everybody's talking about ChatGPT and how you can write malware and you know all kinds of stuff. So it's just a really interesting, um, really interesting spin on AI and how things are kind of evolving. Specifically within academia, you know, I mean, it's been a while since I've been in academia, right? But um, I remember that with like essays and things like that, there was uh, there was online websites, platforms that uh, teachers would use where you could submit your papers and they would kind of go through and they would check for plagiarism, right? And then see if you've, uh, basically they would check and see if you've, um, accurately um, cited the source and uh, you know it would give you like a percentage right so if your paper was massively plagiarized you know maybe it would give you like a hundred percent plagiarized or whatever right and so you know really helpful tool especially if um, you know professors and, and universities allow you to use it to make sure that you're not plagiarizing right like it can it can be hard when you're reading things and you're trying to write things, come up with your own thoughts, and some of it gets jumbled, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've 
you've overly uh, uh, used other material, right? And, and you haven't quoted it or cited it in the appropriate context. So um, those tools have existed for a while, right? You know, 10, I don't even know how long, right? 10, 15 years probably. But this is kind of a nice step, right? This, this, is, this is definitely the next step as far as detecting plagiarism, right? Like this is trying to decipher if an automated tool actually wrote your paper. That's pretty impressive if it works, right? I mean, I'm guessing that it just looks for like glaring issues, right? Because we know that ChatGPT, although it can do a lot of cool stuff, and we've seen it do a lot of cool stuff so far. We've also seen it do things where it's been inaccurate, right? And that's a lot of the concern with AI in general is the accuracy. But um, yeah, I mean, really cool thing for this person to do. Even if this doesn't uh, go like mainstream and you like sell it or something, uh, which I would definitely look into if it is that good. But even if it doesn't, you know, that's an amazing kind of project to put on your resume, right? you're in computer science or something like that, that's a cool idea, right? Think outside the box with things that have happened and how can you create projects or something that, uh, that are relevant for what's happened in recent events. Amazing, right? Very, very good idea. Very, very creative. Uh, you know, even if it kind of works, just still a really awesome idea, really awesome bullet point to have on your resume and something that's gonna make you stand out. Because that's the key, right? On resumes and things like that, you wanna stand out. Do things that people aren't doing that are impressive, that are relevant, and that you can really talk about and have a good story about, right? So very, very cool. But uh, with that, that's gonna wrap up this week's episode. Again, this is your Threat Intel Briefing for January 8th, 2023 through January 14th, 2023. I'm your host, John Good. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. If you are watching on or listening on a podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe, leave us a review as well. Also check out the description because there will be a link to the show notes where you can check out the articles that we talked about, as well as some other articles that I've included that we didn't have time to cover from this week. And with that being said, I want to thank you for joining me and I'll see you next time.